It's just so important to unpack that trauma first to be able to do this work. And that's why the Enneagram is so helpful in saying, hey, this is who you really are. And it doesn't put you in a box. It actually, the Enneagram takes you out of the box you're in and gives you clear tools for how to begin that healing journey. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another week of the Center for Congregation podcast. I am your co-host, Ben Tapper. I'm an associate of resource consulting here in our central office, and I'm joined by our education director and Northeast director, Matt Burke. Hey, Matt. Hey, everybody. And Matt and I had the pleasure of talking this week with an Enneagram expert named Lynette Pokua, and it was a very rich conversation. The Enneagram is such a thriving topic right now, especially in congregational life. And so, Matt, I'm wondering, as you look at not only the work you have done as a consultant, but, you know, also as someone who's always thinking about Christian education, how has the Enneagram been coming up in your work? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say, honestly, that I haven't gotten a lot of requests specifically from congregations around the Enneagram, but it was becoming such a popular topic across a lot of areas. So I can say that we held a number of Ed events a couple of years ago on the Enneagram, and they were among the most well-attended events we've ever had. So clearly it's something that people are interested in, and that's something that's been definitely been personally helpful for me. So it's one of the reasons why we've kind of continued to keep a focus on it in the center's work. So I have not had a lot of interaction with congregations wanting to use the Enneagram either, for whatever reason, but I do see it a lot on social media accounts. I see more and more influencers talking about it, and I hear anecdotally of congregations or congregational leadership teams using the Enneagram in their trainings or to learn more about each other. So I know that it's out there. It just for some reason hasn't come up in a case or a resource consulting that I've done, but it seems pretty prevalent. And like you, I find it very helpful. We did an Enneagram workshop with Lynette as a staff, and it was useful to understand not just the number or wings of different staff members, but, you know, in dialogue, we got to hear a little bit more about personal anecdotes and to understand a little bit of how people think and feel differently in their approach to situations. And that's the type of thing that can inform my interactions with people as I work with them day in and day out. And so I found it very useful in that aspect as well. Yeah. And the interesting thing is this is not something that is new to certain faith traditions like Roman Catholicism or or the Orthodox Church. It's actually been around for quite some time, and it's really only kind of gained traction recently in more conservative evangelical circles, which is what's kind of brought it to the forefront of the public eye in some ways. And, you know, just like any personality profiling system, I always have a heavy dose of skepticism. I used to really despise personality profiles. And I think just because I didn't quite understand what they meant or how they were used. And I would just present to you, if you are someone who's not 
super into these kinds of things or are listening with skepticism. Although if you're skeptical about the Enneagram, you probably already decided not to listen to this episode at all, which is fine. But if you're listening and you're skeptical, you know, I would say that it's just one among many tools that are out there. The reason that I like the Enneagram personally is that it does come from spiritual origins and has a rich history in religious circles. And it also deals with you as, in my opinion, kind of a whole person, more so than I've seen others. And I would also say that as I dove into it, it's one of the first profiling systems that really read my mail, that as I was reading it, I was like, this is talking directly about me. And realizing that practitioners that take it seriously, this is not a way of them putting you in a box, but a way of you opening up understanding about yourself and opening up your understanding of others in a way that is fluid and flexible. So it's not rigid. It's not meant to put you in a cage and keep you bound to something, but a way of just exploring yourself and for communities, learning a shared language of how we talk about ourselves and talk about ourselves to others. And I've found it's been very, very helpful to me to help other people understand me because I understand myself better and have language to be able to talk about myself. Exactly. And one of the reasons that I was so excited to have Lynette on this podcast is because she evaluates the Enneagram through the lens of race and then trauma as well. And so, so often, you know, when you encounter resources on the Enneagram, mention of different racialized experiences in society aren't often brought up. Mention trauma isn't often mentioned in terms of how it might impact how you experience the world, how you experience your own number or your type. And so to have someone that is able to speak not only as a person of color, but to communicate and help other people of color like myself pull out how their experience, even of the Enneagram, might be different or might be influenced by how they have to move through and exist in the world or to help people think about how their history of trauma might impact how they have to move through the world and thus impact their type or number. I just love the intersectionality that she's able to weave into this discussion. And that helps, I think, create a fuller picture to your point, Matt, than just like a rote number or rote archetype that can be useful, but, but may not always be. Yeah, and I think that's a good reminder that for someone especially who grew up as white in white culture, that those things really should be paid attention to no matter what subject matter you're talking about. That when you grow up in white culture and it's pretty much what you're immersed in all the time, you know, make no mistake, you're in a culture. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's just that that culture is unconscious. And it's important when you're living in community with others to remember that others may have different experiences that may be based on ethnicity, socioeconomic status, maybe based in trauma, you know, psychological issues from the past that are present now. And those things need to be brought to bear in all disciplines across the board and not necessarily just in this one. So yeah, I mean, we could talk more about this, but why not just hear from Lynette herself? So with that being said, let's check out the interview. We have the pleasure this morning of speaking with Lynette Pokua. She is a writer, teacher, and Enneagram coach, as well as a first-generation Ghanaian woman. Lynette worked with the Center for Congregation staff in the fall and took us through a series of Enneagram workshops that really helped us build a greater sense of who we are as individuals, as well as the way in which our individuality affects the broader culture that we hold here at the Center for Congregations. She focuses on Enneagram content traditionally, but also as it 
plays out through the lived experiences and voices of people of color and others that are traditionally placed at the margins. And so she just brings a really unique perspective to this work and a lot of wisdom and insight. And so, Lynette, we are so grateful to have you here with us this morning. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to share some of my work, to nerd out a little bit on the internet. I think you have the distinction of having the absolute longest introduction of anyone in the history of the Center for Congregations podcast. So for real. Love it. That usually is like 20 seconds. Want to be known and seen fully. So this is great. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so let the nerding out commence. Can you start, Lynette, by telling us or reminding us what the Enneagram is? Yeah, absolutely. So the Enneagram is rooted in so many different faith traditions, and it is this beautiful pathway, I like to say, this blueprint towards understanding yourself in a deeper way. It is this flashlight to the human soul, I like to say, and it says that there are these nine ways of seeing the world. There are these nine personality systems and there are these coping mechanisms attached to it. The Enneagram helps us understand our ways of seeing and doing and being in the world, which is incredible. Again, it gives us this language for how we see the world. Another part and aspect of the Enneagram that I really enjoy is that it helps us to have such a deep and greater sense of compassion for our siblings um, in the world, in a world where there's just so much conflict and there's so much tension. The Enneagram offers us this understanding that we're all struggling here. We're all trying to do our best here. And so it gives us a greater sense of empathy and understanding where we can see each other in a deeper sense. And what is it about the Enneagram that you think draws people of faith in? I've noticed it seems like an explosion of interest in this, especially among evangelical circles. And so I'm wondering, from your area of expertise, what have you seen and what do you think is drawing people of faith into this? Yeah, it's interesting. So the school that I currently go to for counseling is historically an evangelical school. And so the same thing has happened where there's this explosion with interest about the Enneagram. And one of the things my professor was telling us just last night was that we are an incredibly emotionally intelligent generation. And we are really seeking to understand the depths of who we are and and what that consists of is how we feel and how we think. And so that includes people who are of faith and who are evangelicals, and they're looking for something beyond the Bible they've been given that says you need to follow it literally. And they're saying, but what if there's more? Mm. And there's something about the Enneagram that offers more, that offers this pathway to freedom. Because believe it or not, I mean, I used to come from the evangelical tradition. In a lot of ways, it was very limiting and enslaving in a lot of ways. And so the Enneagram is this pathway, this tool to say, let's get a little bit deeper. What does it look like to explore ourselves and not just the divinity out over here in the heavens, but the divinity within us, dare I say, the former evangelical. My evangelical brothers and sisters would call me a heretic, but I think that 
the Enneagram helps to expose this light within us, this mm. love, this, again, this divinity within us. And I wonder, as I hear you talk about it and talk about there being more, the connotation that I hear with that is that, you know, there may be some for whom they've grown up in a particular tradition and they want to question and figure out what to take or what to keep. And so more is drawing them that way. Then there may be others that are largely happy with their tradition, right? And don't necessarily want to get rid of anything, but still there's this question of, is there more? Like, is there something I can add that I can use to supplement what I know of the Bible or scripture or my tradition that is enriching? And I think studying the Enneagram can appeal to people in both camps. And maybe that's also part of what is attracting people. Yeah, I think the Enneagram is so versatile and vast and allows for different faith traditions to grab hold on it as a spiritual tool to, again, really draw into our souls. And for those who are evangelical to really say, who has God created me to be? And how can I connect to the divine and to God in in a intimate way. And the Enneagram has offered that ability to do that. It's incredible even seeing it within evangelical communities, how they've latched onto it and how much more of a deeper connection they have with God that is, again, beyond the boundaries and confines of the sacred text of the Bible. You and I first connected or I first encountered you at a conference called the Mystic Soul Conference in Chicago in 2019, I think. Mm -hmm. You were leading a a workshop on the Enneagram for people of color. That was the first time that I considered that something like the Enneagram, which I didn't know a whole lot about, might have different implications, different understandings. There might be a different lens of looking at it and understanding it if you're a person of color. And I walked away from that with an idea of what my number might be, and I've since changed. But I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about why, like, what is it about being a person of color or, you know, as you shared with our staff, even undergoing trauma at some point, that might bring a different lens to the way we can understand and think about our own experience of the Enneagram? Yeah, the Mystic Soul Project has been an amazing platform for me to come into my voice and come into my understanding of the Enneagram, just to kind of backtrack, the Mystic Soul Project is a space where it centers people of color and their spirituality and helps them tap into contemplation and transformation in a unique space, like I said, that centers their voices. And so when I met the co-founder, Teresa, she was like, hey, we are in need of a person of color to teach the Enneagram, to even teach the Enneagram because the Enneagram community is so whitewashed and it's so white-centered and we believe even to have your present for you to show up as a gift. And then I realized as I was doing research that, wow, like there isn't even a perspective on the intersections of race and the Enneagram. And that's when I started building my specialized content around this. And so I just want to start there and say Mm -hmm. Mystic Soul Project, I want to give them so much credit for even seeing and believing in me and giving me that space to kind of open up and flourish and to think about these very important topics. And because of that, I have my own community, my own work around this. Anyway, so I remember in 2018 starting to teach my first workshop and I was like, well, I don't know much but I do believe in the power of community and people's stories to inform my work. And so 
it started with just teaching the basics of the Enneagram. And then I was like, how does this connect to your blackness? How does this connect to you being a brown person in this country? How does your number connect? And what I found is that everyone connects with the Enneagram's set of coping mechanisms, set of wounding messages, sets of struggles attached to their number. But when they added the element of race, what they realized was, wow, this adds a second layer of challenge. This, and to give an analogy of a backpack, not only do I have this heavy backpack of life that's difficult and that's hard and unpredictable and hard to navigate, I also have to battle my identity as a Black woman. And that adds an extra weight to my backpack. And because I haven't been given the tool of the Enneagram yet, it is just too much to bear. And so finally, this Enneagram space I created, Mystic Soul, finally I get to unpack what has been on my shoulders for so long. And I get to examine what these are. And so as people were telling their stories, they were like, hey, I'm an Enneagram 9 and I'm a Black woman. And so not only am I, as an Enneagram 9, not only do I struggle with this feeling, for example, that my presence doesn't matter, but I also live in a world that says my presence doesn't matter and must be silenced as a woman, right? And so when we talk about the Enneagram and race, we, we talk about just these added layers of challenge of navigating a very already difficult world. And when we talk about issues of race, it adds a further challenge. And these are the things I talk about. And this is the power of story because we get to understand people's experiences. And we also, in a bigger sense, understand the pains of our history, the complications of, and the hardships of our history and how that informs how we unpack our trauma, how we unpack our life's issues on a microcosmic level. And so it's been an incredible journey to think about how me as a person of color and how that interacts with my Enneagram number and how much more challenges I face because of that. I know that was a lot, but but it is a very big question. It really is. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that, Lynette. And I'm curious, so I know a lot of congregations who are interested in becoming more diverse and more inclusive, but they still are predominantly white. Their culture is still predominantly white. So how does a congregation like that learn to take a tool like the Enneagram that potentially they're interested in and potentially the resources that they have on hand are from white voices, or maybe even the person in the congregation is schooled in the Enneagram, but from the white perspective. How does a congregation like that learn to talk about it, teach it, and integrate it into the congregational life in a way that is beneficial and helpful for people of color who might be a part of that congregation? How do they develop some kind of sensitivity or ability to make sure that they are including the voices and perspectives of all of the people in the congregation, not just the predominantly white members? Yeah, I think that creating a culture of, as I said in the beginning of storytelling, if you do have people of color in the room, honestly, their presence is a gift enough. And so I think 
one of the things I've been taught recently is that it takes a lot of vulnerability for a person of color to even speak up. Mm. And so I think giving that space for them to speak, but to obviously leave room to say, hey, your presence is enough already. And so I just wanted to lay that foundation first, that their presence is a gift enough. And the facilitator needs to preface that it is not my intention to tokenize at all, but it's to center your voice and your story. And you have the freedom to share that if you want. I think it's up to the facilitator to say, hey, this is a predominantly white space, but there are other voices in the world that add to the totality of this Enneagram story, this Enneagram personality system. And so to be honest that this is just one perspective and there are other ones that are out there. And I think being real and having the conversation on race and how that connects to their Enneagram number is a very good start. I, in my experience, have worked with both white and black communities and I've worked in all white spaces. And I'm very honest about asking white people to talk about how their whiteness connects with their number and how that might influence the way they interact with people of color. And so having those vulnerable conversations, even though there isn't a person of color in the room, or even though the person of color doesn't share their perspective, it's recognizing that those voices exist is a very good start and acknowledging their whiteness and how that connects to their Enneagram number. I was wondering, you mentioned before that you are a Enneagram nine. And so I'm wondering about this idea of a nine feeling like their voice doesn't matter. And then I was thinking about the fact that Matt and I both identify as Enneagram twos and our primary focus is often on identifying the needs of another. To me, it seems like, oh, that's a perfect match. But then I also wondered, could that be overwhelming for like a nine to have you know, multiple people focused on trying to hold space for them, you know, like, yeah. So could you just talk through like what dynamics could even be coming up or could come up? Like as we think about how our numbers and the way we identify and bring ourselves into this space, my interplay. So this is a fun question because my partner's in two. So this is, mm. this is a conversation. we have. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So the first thing that I want to say about two nine dynamics, just because I think your question alludes to the question of how do twos and nines navigate relationship with one another? How does a nine feel smothered? I think that can happen on the unhealthy side of a two nine relationship where the nine feels smothered by the twos need to meet their needs and not give them the space and the independence and the autonomy to figure it out on their own or to say what their needs are. And if there are any, I think also for the two, the problem that they can face with a nine is a nine can withdraw. Mm. And because it, there's just too much conflict um, and there's too much energy that they need to put forth in whatever conflict or situation that they're dealing with. So a two is constantly having to fight with the nine to say, can you give me something? Can you tell me what's going on? Can you communicate? And that's the trouble of the two nine relationship. But on the healthy side of things, if a nine is, is self-aware, they are grounded in the truth that their presence matters. They're grounded in the truth that because their presence matters, they can assert their needs. They can assert what they want. They can assert their opinion, their preferences. 
And then a two on the healthy side can trust that the person's going to communicate. They can trust that they are lovable, right? And so they don't need to meet needs. Their love is without strings attached. Sort of living, another word that, you know, my partner uses and I've heard in a podcast about twos is like twos come to a place where they cleanly give and they ask the question of what is mine's to give versus I'm just going to give, you know, without boundaries, right? Like twos cultivate this like healthy sense of boundaries and are caring for themselves and aren't relying on the nine to meet their needs in return, right? There's always this need. Love is so transactional with twos. And so when twos are healthy, they get to a place where it's not transactional and they know how to care for themselves. And so they, there's no expectation to get their needs met from other people. Love is just cleanly given and received naturally. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the two nine dynamic usually. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. that's really helpful, Annette. And for, for those listening who may not know a lot about the Enneagram and may even have skepticism about typing systems, For the record, you know, Lynette doesn't know me well. I don't know her well, but everything that she just described when she was talking about how twos behave, that's me. (laughs) She was speaking to me. That's one of the beauties of the Enneagram. Not that it pigeonholes you, not that it necessarily tells you what you should be, but just helps you describe who you are and understand yourself. And so, you know, in the resources section, we'll provide some introductory materials that'll help you kind of take an entree into it. But for those listening who may not be familiar with it, and that was kind of weird to listen to, I assure you that those of us who are fans of the Enneagram see ourselves in it, and that's why it's so valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And there are plenty of books and podcasts, you know, that are out there that do a kind of more broad overview. So you can definitely check that out. I'm going to take us in a a step deeper even. As you were talking, Lynette, I resonate with what Matt said. Obviously, a lot of how twos interact, how you've described it, feels like it's speaking in my life directly. And before we started working with you as a center, I thought my number was like a five and I thought it was an eight. You know, I had all kinds of different ideas of what it might be. But the thing about the two, like what kind of convinced me was the core question, which is, am I lovable? Right. And that feels like a question that I have lived my entire life, you know, trying to answer and, and never been able to name until probably I was reading a book on the Enneagram in preparation for workshops with you. The intersection, though, for me is as I think about my personal trauma, you know, as I think about my own background and being a survivor of child abuse and neglect, that kind of compounds and adds another layer to this question that I'm carrying with me. And so as I think about the intersections of race, history, lived experience with the Enneagram, like what's innate versus what is learned through life experience, I'm realizing that that question like has compounded for me in multiple ways. And so as I talk about the Enneagram, I know that core question is influenced not just by the innate way that I was kind of brought up, but by the losses I've experienced in my life, by the way I moved through the world, by the needs that went unmet at some point in time. And so I just wanted to bring that up to illustrate the richness, not only of the Enneagram, but of the work that you do in helping people understand the ways their different intersectionalities and identities can add to their understanding of themselves and the way the Enneagram can help bring all that out. Yeah, no, I agree. I think the trauma piece is so important to talk about because I think that's often the reason why when I'm working with other people, why they get mistyped. Because there are just so many different layers they have had an unpacked of trauma that 
almost clouds the truth of who they are, the core of who they are. Um, And we can go even deeper for myself. When I speak of my own trauma of dealing with a father who was mentally ill, and so often he was present physically, but emotionally wasn't there. And so as a nine, the way that I coped with that was believing and feeling this and being affirmed in this truth that my presence doesn't matter because my dad isn't emotionally present for me. And so you see the ripple effects of trauma, what it does, it almost is a compound. You mentioned that a compounding effect. It almost acts as a multiplier effect and it adds further challenge to how we heal. And so that's why it's just so important to unpack that trauma first to be able to do this work. And that's why the Enneagram is so helpful in saying, hey, this is who you really are. And it doesn't put you in a box. It actually, the Enneagram takes you out of the box you're in Hmm. and gives you clear tools for how to begin that healing journey, whether it's the trauma I mentioned for myself or any other sort of conflict. The Enneagram is, is such a powerful tool for that. One of the things that I heard you mention in previous interactions is people can be learning about the Enneagram, learning about themselves. I think it's natural for this question to come up of, okay, well, which is it? Like, am I this way because I was born as a two with this question of am I lovable or do I have this question because I experienced neglect from parents that should have offered more love? And the response I recall you offering is yes. Like, it's both. It's all that. You know, you don't have to figure out one or the other. We are... We're a summation of all of our experiences, of all we were born with. It, it is all of that. So when you talk about the Enneagram kind of taking you out of the box, that's what I hear. It's given freedom to not feel like you have to figure out which is which, but just accepting that it is, that you are, that that is my question, right? And then, okay, how do I live with that truth? How do I live in that truth? Right. Yeah. Because I think it's so complex, right? And then there's so much arguments around this question of like, yeah, did my Enneagram number come first? Did the trauma come first? My environment affected? And they're all connected. As you mentioned, they all affect one another. And I think, yeah, the important piece of it is what do I do now? How do I learn from my experience? How do I heal here? How do I use this Enneagram tool and many other tools, frankly, out there, for instance, therapy to begin this journey towards wholeness? Yeah. I'm thinking about congregational life. You know, we do a lot of work with congregations, many of whom are our churches. And oftentimes when we have guests on, Matt and I are wondering, how might this topic impact and influence how someone thinks about their leadership, right? If they're a pastor or even a lay leader in a congregation. And so I'll pose that question to you, Lynette, as you think about Enneagram, as you understand it, as you teach it, as you practice it, how might a leader in a congregation utilize this to improve their leadership? Yeah. So I work, I have many jobs, but I work in a campus ministry context. It it feels like a mini congregation. And I worked with them, some of the director of worship. So I worked with them for like five years. Oh my gosh, five years. And the Enneagram has been a tremendous help in our little mini church congregational setting. And so we are a staff of four right now actually five we just expanded and the enneagram again has been just such a helpful tool as we think about our leadership styles as we think about where conflicts may arise so for instance our executive pastors and enneagram three 
and I'm an Enneagram nine. And so when we have our meetings, we generally are actually pretty efficient. And as a three and a leader, he's often wanting to get things moving. He's pretty direct. He's very goal oriented. And that's something he knows about himself as an Enneagram three. That is his leadership style. It heavily influences the way he leads. And as a nine, I'm thinking to myself, I'm a little bit slower moving and I need time to think. I'm an internal processor. Yeah, I need some time. And so often where the conflict lies is, and especially as a white man, he likes to bulldoze over me and he doesn't realize it. And I'm a woman too, and he likes to talk over me. And so it's interesting. We're always having to address these intersections of like, you're a white man. Yes, you're a gay white man, but you are still a white man. And so there are these dynamics of you're an Enneagram three. So you already are like this all the time. You live in a culture that's like mass production all the time and you're a white man. And so you're taught to talk over me. And so I'm always having to slow him down, to be honest, and to let him realize that, hey, there's another voice in the room and that has value just as much as you do. Threes often have this metric system of like what doesn't have value and what does, what is mass producing, what doesn't. And so what does it look like as a nine to be able to say, what if your value doesn't come from what you produce, but from being here and and being present with the people in your community and being in tune with what they're needing in the moment. Anyway, that's just a microcosmic example of how your Enneagram number connects with your leadership style in a congregational setting and the dynamics of race and gender and things and how that adds a lot of layers. Yeah, no, that's a really helpful explanation and example. And I think, you know, some people might be reluctant to embrace the Enneagram or any type of personality system, because I think I've heard the critique before that it's too much about yourself. You're paying too much attention to yourself, to your own thoughts, feelings, and issues. But just from my experience, I've learned differently from the Enneagram, but I think it'd be great to hear from you. How do you handle that critique? And where do you see that that is not the case with the Enneagram and tools like it, that it's not just kind of a selfish navel gazing, but actually a benefit to a community? Yeah, I mean, I would argue that the Enneagram is to help you look inside of yourself because I think a lot of transformation on an organizational systematic level starts with these one-on-one, this interpersonal relationship, and then this intrapersonal relationship with yourself that is saying, oh, what story am I telling myself? What are perceived thoughts and feelings do I have? And how is this affecting how I behave in the workplace. So I would argue, yes, it is It is a tool to look inside of yourself, but you need to do that in order to effectively communicate and effectively be in relationship with the people you're working with or the people you're living life with. I think it's so important. And maybe it's just because I'm in the counseling field and that's all we talk about. But I think it starts with ourselves and then it sort of seeps out into our human interactions or, or our relationships. And so if you're doing it right, if you're doing the work internally, you will naturally start to do the, the communal healing work that is needed. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think it comes from thinking about self and other is a false dichotomy, that it's one or the other. But this is a both-and proposition. Yes, the lines are blurred. It's interesting. Our minds generally just like to work in binaries, but there are none in a lot of ways. There's a lot of gray. Thinking about something very practical for those that are still going through the process of trying to type themselves, what tips do you have for people that are just trying to figure out the basics? What number am I? Very good question. So it helps to be already a little bit self-aware to know what ticks you off. Do you tend to be a black and white thinker? Just these like general things to know about yourself. But I say, you know, the tests are a great first thing to do is just take a free online test. But I think where you get the real accurate information is reading a book of some sort or online resource that goes through all of the numbers. And then the one that makes you cringe, the one that makes you feel so exposed, so caught is the one that's your number. And sometimes it starts with eliminating the ones that are absolutely not you and then going from there and again, asking yourself, Ooh, what's the one that makes me feel uncomfortable. And I think it takes again, a level of honesty, radical honesty about who you are and yourself. And that's hard to do. That's really hard to do, but I think it starts there. As an amateur in it, I would also recommend listening to sleeping at last's album and whichever track of the number makes you cry. (laughs) that's a good indicator i listen to the two and i cry every time so so. let's be real matt all of them make me cry (laughs) (laughs) sounds like a typical nine (laughs) (laughs) that's perfect I love that advice, Lynette, because it's so true. You know, I mentioned that for a while I thought I was a five and I was like, okay, cool. I can get down with that. And I thought I was an eight and I was like, oh yeah, the challenger. That's what's up. In the back of my mind though, I was like, I just, I do not want to be a two. Like I I cannot be a two. And so to your point, the one that makes you most uncomfortable is usually an indication that like that's your number. Maybe it's a strong wing or something, but like you got to pay attention to that. Yeah. It was funny when you were sharing your story, I was remembering when I found out my number and I was like, yep, I'm not the nine. I don't (laughs) want to be the nine. That's not me. That's not, mm -mm, nope, not not me. That was the same thought process for me too. Oh, that's great. That's great. So as people, they've heard you speak, they are interested in learning more, where can they find you either to book your services or to learn more about the Enneagram or just find out more about the work that you do? How can they be in touch with you? Yeah. So I'm on generally on Instagram. So look me up on LK Pokua. So LK, my last name. And then also Enneagram in color is another way to connect with me on Instagram. And then my website on www.inyastories.com. And that's where I have all of my availability for bookings and services. And I have some blog entries and of course, a lot to learn about the Enneagram if you're interested. Excellent. Thank you so much for that, Lynette. Yeah, of course. We'll make sure all of that information is in the show notes. And Lynette, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. All right. Thank you.
Ben, I don't know about you. I really enjoyed talking to Lynette. She knows so much about it and just brings so much because of just who she is as a person and also her knowledge and expertise of the Enneagram. What stuck out to you from our conversation, our interview with her? Yeah, this is, I think, my third or fourth time interacting with her. And each time I walk away feeling like I've gotten something else to chew on and I walk away feeling a bit more inspired. So I always appreciate those opportunities. In terms of what I'm chewing on or or what stuck out to me, this question of why now? You know, why is it now that evangelical Christians, why do evangelical Christians are really flocking to the Enneagram? And why has it been happening over the last five or 10 years? And I love that Lynette talked about people kind of looking for something beyond what they've been given. And as a, a millennial myself who enjoys questioning and feels compelled to question almost everything, that really resonated deeply with me. And I think the Enneagram does offer, especially if you are able to talk with someone that, that knows it well, can look at it through an intersectional lens, it does offer more depth than you might have accessed or been given in the home you grew up in or in the single lens through which you're looking at your theology or your faith tradition. And so to bring that in conversation with the beliefs that you have, with your political, social, or theological worldview, I think there's a richness that can be unearthed and that people are finding is unearthed within themselves as a result of engaging with the Enneagram. And so I just love returning to this question of why now? You know, what are people seeking beyond what they've already been given? And I loved what she illuminated from that. Yeah, I think something that the Enneagram has done for me and something that I think is part of a larger cultural move is that we are seeking to be less disintegrated people, that we grew up in ways where we had compartments for our faith, compartments for our schooling, compartments for our family, compartments for our occupation. And I think those lines are becoming more blurred, and I think that's a good thing, that you know, the Enlightenment, the way of thinking about everything as categorizing and separating, it serves its purposes, but I think we maybe move too far as a culture into thinking that all of life was like that. And I see the Enneagram as something, as one among many tools that brings integration to the person that says all of this is part of your identity and who you are. And that's one of the things that I appreciated about her highlighting, as you mentioned before the interview, about how race plays a part in it, how trauma plays a part in it, because it's bringing the whole self to the table. And I just think there's something about that that growing up in a disintegrated culture, those of us who are a little bit younger and asking those questions are looking for how to become more whole people and how to put all those pieces together. Yeah, absolutely. Integration is, it's definitely been a theme of my life and I sense it in a lot of those around me and in some ways in our broader culture, you know, and maybe the pandemic has really highlighted the disintegration that we previously walked around with and kind of fueled the hunger for more integration. Lynette also talked about how the Enneagram can be useful in leadership teams and congregations. And this idea of integration versus disintegration, I think, plays out in how we lead and how we evaluate leadership teams and how we come together and work together or don't work well together as a team. And so, you know, to me, it it moves just beyond the personal. It's not just about me wanting to be able to see and reconcile and hold with love all the different pieces of myself. But it's also about how I then bring those pieces and my integrated self 
in interaction with someone else's pieces or someone else's integrated self. And when you have more than one person you're interacting with, then it's about how do we exist and bring all of our pieces together in ways that are loving, mutually beneficial, and in service to our larger vision and goals, especially if you're an organization or a congregation. And so, you know, I like that she talked about the ways that the Enneagram can be used to move us past the personal. And it's really rich and beneficial for the personal. But We don't just live as islands, right? There's always a network that we're tied to. And so for congregational leaders wondering about how else to apply this, I think that it has a lot of potential to really unpack the hidden things, the dynamics that play out within leadership teams, within a congregation, whether they're lay leaders or paid staff. And then it invites us to be curious about how we interact within a system, how we are playing into those dynamics, or how we are working against those dynamics. And it allows us to kind of take a step back and to think about how we want to exist, how we want our team to exist versus where we're at today. And so I really just like playing with this interpersonal dynamic lens that the Enneagram can offer. Yeah. And even in something that you just said, Ben, illustrates the way that we integrate or don't integrate well when you mentioned personal work versus work in the group or in the community. And I'm learning more and more that that is a false dichotomy, Mm. that the more I know and understand myself, the better I'm able to live and walk in the communities that I'm a part of. And the more I know and understand the communities that I'm a part of, the better I'm able to know myself and how we've taken those things apart. And it just makes me think of the lens that I would have been uncomfortable with once upon a time of, you know, the Enneagram's about learning about yourself. It's about self. It's about self-discovery. It's about self-exploration. And that can sound very selfish and self-serving. And people dismiss it as, you know, navel-gazing or just, you know, paying way too much attention because doesn't our theology say that we're supposed to be other-focused? And it reminds me of from uh, the Christian scriptures where Jesus talks about the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I had a professor explain that, that he said in the original language, or a real appropriate translation of that would be love God and all of the things associated with that. And another way of saying the same thing is love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. And so rather than looking at that as two different commandments, and usually we take what's first as more important, what's second as less important, but with that understanding that, no, these are saying the same thing, Mm. that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength through loving your neighbor as yourself and vice versa. Mm. And so getting beyond that understanding of, you know, paying attention to ourselves and loving ourselves is some kind of negative thing or damaging, but rather it's a way in which we serve ourselves, serve God, and serve others. And of course, you know, you don't want to get so wrapped up in yourself that you don't pay attention to anyone. I mean, of course, of course, of course, those caveats apply, but the corrective needs to be it's okay to spend time learning and understanding yourself because it changes every aspect of life around you and how you interact with the divine and how you interact with your community. And I'll go a step further. You know, when I hear that first love your neighbor as yourself, my thought is if you're not loving yourself, if we're not loving ourselves, then we probably can't love our neighbors as fully as we want to. Because if you don't know how to give love to yourself, which means being able to see yourself as you are, being able to accept yourself, being able to offer yourself gentleness and compassion as well as being able to push yourself and give yourself that kick in the pants when you need it. If you can't really do all of that and all those things come with loving, then it's really hard to know how to offer someone else that, right? And so this idea of introspection, of evaluating oneself, getting to know oneself, unpacking all that lies within us, 
to your point, Matt, it's crucial not only to the gospel message, but to just what it means to exist in a healthy way. You know, getting off topic a little here, but as a parent now, I understand that I cannot be the father I want to be if I am not working on healing all that's happening within me, right? And so because we always exist in relationship with someone else in some capacity, to your point, there isn't really a hard and fast distinction between what is our work and then what becomes the work of relationship. Whether you're a pastor, a lay leader, a parent, a spouse, it's all tied together. Yeah, totally agree. And so with that, we're going to share some resources here in just a moment. So next up, resources. So Ben, the world of resources around the Enneagram, there are so many things out there. I did some searches, some fresh searches to look for anything new, and (laughs) there's so much information. So we're going to try to break it down into things that are really helpful and relevant, things that are from people that we respect, and hopefully you will find helpful information in those as well. So Ben, what did you have? So yeah, there are a few different things that I want to bring here today. And, you know, obviously, if you do a quick Google search, you'll find plenty of books on the Enneagram that you can start with. They're all good primers on it. But I'm going to move past that a little bit. So the first resource that I'm going to bring up is Lynette's website. As you probably heard, she has a wealth of wisdom regarding the Enneagram. And so I wanted to highlight this website because you can find more information about the Enneagram there. You can find more information about Lynette there. And you can find information on the services that she offers. And she has several different types of Enneagram-based services that you can purchase and book through the website. So check out this website. It's called enneastories.com, E-N-N-E-A stories.com, and learn more about Lynette and the work that she offers. So that's the first one. And the second one that I'll bring up briefly here is an article from March of last year that talks about the childhood wounds of every Enneagram type. Again, very general. And so I'm not saying take everything here as gospel truth, but I bring it up because it allows us to kind of ask deeper questions about our type and about our own unique experience of that type. And so example of a childhood wound, they're saying the Enneagram 3 childhood wound is rejection of their core self. Enneagram 4 is the rejection of identity. And so I think these are good points of curiosity for us to begin to kind of ask if this rings true for us or not. And if it doesn't, are there additional wounds that we're carrying that we might then think about exploring and trying to identify and wondering about how those affect the way that we exist either for ourselves or the way that we show up in relationships to other people? Thanks, Ben. Uh, Those sound like some really solid picks, and especially following the work of Lynette, she just is really sharp and really knows her stuff. So I appreciate that. I want to highlight the Center for Action and Contemplation. We'll put this in the resource list, but they have an introductory page, the Enneagram and Introduction, which again is introductory in nature, but it has links to do deeper dives. And if you're familiar at all with the Center for Action and Contemplation, it's Father Richard Rohr's organization, and he's a pretty trusted voice in a lot of things around personhood, integration, spirituality, and he also knows a lot about the Enneagram. So I highly recommend that as another introductory dive into the Enneagram. I also want to bring another practitioner. The website is enneagramforwholeness.com, but this is Annie Diamond, who is certified in the narrative tradition of the Enneagram. And this is a practice of learning about Enneagram numbers 
through listening to the stories of others. And I think Lynette actually used that as well. I mean, when she did the work with us, but it's much less academic. And especially if you're a group that is interested in doing this together, I highly recommend finding a practitioner who is part of the narrative tradition of the Enneagram because they can help pull out the stories of the lives of the people in your community that you're working with and use that as a way to help you understand the Enneagram and yourselves better, but also understand one another better. It's a really, really rich way of doing it. And then Annie also has some other resources available as well. Thank you, Matt. Both Annie Diamond and Richard Rohr are excellent resources, and they bring a perspective on the Enneagram and spirituality that really helps supplement what Lynette talks about in the work that she does. So those are excellent resources. Yeah, and one more I'm going to add. We're not going to put this on the CRG, but I want to add it to the show notes because these women are hilarious. There's a YouTube channel for two comedians, Leanne and Michelle, and they've done a number of videos about how different Enneagram numbers react to various things. And they're really, really funny. So if you listen to this late in the podcast and you actually can click on the show notes, I highly encourage you to check those out. They really are great comedians. They are enjoyable. They are enjoyable. So make sure to check out the show notes for a link to all of those resources. And remember that we have tons more resources on the CRG, the Congregational Resource Guide. That's T-H-E-C-R-G dot org, where you can find all kinds of resources that we've discovered over the last number of years at the Center for Congregations. And as a reminder, these are not resources that pay for advertisement. These are ones that we have independently found and chosen as good representations of material that we think will be helpful for congregations. You can also be sure to follow us on social media at the Center for Congregations on both Facebook and Instagram. We post congregational highlights, information about resources, and upcoming educational events. And so if you want to stay abreast about what is happening within Indiana congregations, please be sure to follow us on social media. Please also be sure to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you access. It's the best way to make sure others can find this content. And we hope you like this content and would actually like to rate and review as five stars. But that's the best way to make sure we get bumped up in the algorithm so other people can find us and listen to these great resources as well. We just want to thank the Lilly Endowment for the funding that they offer that allows us to do work like this and to provide resources for Indiana congregations. And Ben and I would love to hear from you. You can reach out to us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. That's an inbox that goes directly to each of us. And we would love to hear your thoughts on our episodes, ideas for other guests or future episodes, or just any kind of feedback at all. So let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And we would be remiss if we didn't thank our audio engineer, Jaden Lee. So thank you so much, Jaden, for the work that you do, for the way that you make us sound, and just for being a partner in this endeavor. We really appreciate you and your work. So if y'all want to learn more about Jaden, reach out to us and we can help connect you. All right, y'all. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. Until next time, I'm Ben Tapper. And I'm Matt Burke.